to come this Lord's Day to the traditional Sunday that Easter is celebrated, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the grave. And of course, we celebrate it every Lord's Day. But this morning I wanted to speak on the subject, Christ arose and so shall we. And to many of you, this will not be anything new. But I call your attention to the text that we just finished moments ago. John chapter 12 at verse 23, Jesus answered them saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, he will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled, but what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Nothing is clearer than this. Our Lord Jesus was physically raised from the grave. And that is what we celebrate, especially this Lord's Day. And yet, there are many false teachers. They deny either that Christ has risen from the grave or that the Lord's people Christ will raise from the grave. Some deny that Christ rose bodily, that He just rose spiritually. Some deny that the saints will rise bodily but rather they will only rise spiritually. Some deny that Christ retains His human body as He sits in glory making intercession for us. So they claim He rose bodily in this life, but that He has no body but is returned only to spirit now. And all of these false teachings are clearly refuted in the Scriptures. And this text we just read is prefaced by the coming of the Gentiles. Sir, we would see Jesus, they said to Philip the Apostle. And Philip relayed their request to the Lord. And the Lord did not accept them to see Him at that time. But rather He pronounced that the time had now come to prepare and execute salvation for all who come to Jesus. That is what the Lord's response was. Now is the time that the Son of Man must be glorified, by which He means to suffer as the sacrifice to take away the sin of everyone who comes to Him, both Jew and Gentile. And this was a troubling thing to Christ in His humanity, as He showed later on in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross, that death that He must die to save us. But He explained it with a metaphor, that is the metaphor of the grain of wheat that falls to the ground and dies, and then springs up in new life, bringing forth much fruit. There is a multiplication of life that Christ refers to here. And He is the grain of wheat. And He is the only grain of wheat that has any life in Him. All the rest of us are dead in our sins, aren't we? And if Christ had not been sacrificed, you see, if that grain of wheat had not been planted, as it were, 
then there would have been no new life spring up from him. He would have been alone. A grain of wheat that's not planted is all alone, isn't it? It may have life in it, but there's no new life from it. And so from death springs much new life, both in our physical world and in the life and death and resurrection of Christ. Christ alive and nobody else lives. Christ died and raised alive again, and everybody who comes to Christ and believes is raised to new life. And that's the gospel. Come to Christ and believe on Him and trust in Him and lay aside all your own works of righteousness so-called which are a stench in the nostrils of God and lay hold of Christ the sacrifice. And when you do that, you will find you have laid hold of Christ, that dynamo of life for all who are dead. He is raised up in new life and He raises up His people who trust in Him and new life. And in Christ there is, if you will use the metaphor, a bumper crop from the death of Christ and the new life of Christ's resurrection. Because He is our sin sacrifice, by which the judgment of death is reversed spiritually and physically and in every other way. Paul uses the same metaphor to explain the similar yet glorified bodies of the resurrected. You remember he says that a grain is sown in one form or shape and it rises up when it germinates and matures and grows into another form or shape which is related to that original form or shape in some ways is derived from that original form and shape. And yet, Paul uses this to explain the difference between our natural bodies which are buried in our death and our spiritual bodies which Christ raises us up unto. That Jesus rose again with His human body cannot be contradicted from Scripture. In Matthew 28, verse 1, we read that glorious testimony. At the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers, that is the guards and the people who kept the garden, did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for He is risen as He said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. Now, here we pause to point out that where the body of Christ had been put in the tomb, now the tomb was empty. The body was gone. The body was not stolen. The body had risen again unto everlasting life. He's not here. He's risen. As He said, come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell His disciples that He's risen from the dead. And behold, He goeth before you into Galilee. There shall you see Him. Lo, I've told you. They departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy and did run to bring His disciples' word. And as they went to tell His disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, All hail! 
And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. Notice also this text makes it very clear that the body of Christ was a sensible body. It was physical. It could be touched and held onto by these blessed ladies who were the first to witness the resurrection of Christ. The tomb was physically empty. They saw Jesus. They touched His body, which had been raised in power and glory. And then in John chapter 20, we'll read at verse 19, then the same day at evening, that is the afternoon of the resurrection Sunday, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut with the disciples, were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And when He had so said, He showed unto them His hands and His side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Now in another place it says that Christ appeared before them, though the doors were locked. You see, the glorified body, while it is physical and tangible, is not subject to the old way the world works. It is not subject to the barriers of space, the barriers of solid objects, but rather Christ could appear and leave and travel great distances in short times. And so He appears to them. He shows them the wounds that He bore from Calvary. And when they saw Him, they were glad. They knew who it was. This was no mere spirit or haint floating around. It was the very raised body of the Lord Jesus. Verse 24, But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again his disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut again, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then said he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. So these are all proofs that Jesus gave to His disciples that He was really substantially physically raised from the grave in an identifiable, touchable human body. And then finally at Luke 24, at verse 36, we read, And as they thus spake, Jesus Himself stood in the midst of them and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted, and supposed they had seen a spirit. Contrary to which he says unto them, Why are ye troubled, and why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, Have ye here any meat? And they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and a honeycomb, and he took it and did eat before them. Have you ever noticed that he said, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I my 
Himself. You see that Christ, even after His death, even after His resurrection, identifies His body as being Himself. Now granted, He also has a Spirit which is invisible to us. And yet, the Lord Jesus embraces His own raised body as being Himself, identical to His real person and His real existence. And furthermore, note that He eats in this body. Spirits can't eat. They don't have any teeth to chew with or any esophagus to swallow with or any stomach to receive the contents of their meals. But the Lord Jesus eats. He eats a broiled fish and a honeycomb. So there is no question that the Lord Jesus was raised bodily from the grave. And Christ clearly taught a physical resurrection of His people by His power. This again is something that the false teachers, some of them, will deny. John chapter 5 at verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death to life. Now notice, everlasting life is related to not coming into condemnation. Those without everlasting life are condemned. Why? Because of their sin. Because of their disobedience. Because of their rebellion against the God that made them. But those who hear Christ's Word and believe, you see, they have everlasting life. They shall not come into condemnation, but they're passed from death into life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in Himself, so hath He given to the Son to have life in Himself and hath given Him authority to execute judgment also because He is the Son of Man. So you see that Christ is not only the vindicator of those who trust in Him and the one who gives life to them, eternal life. He's also the judge who executes death against those who will not trust in Him or believe Him or obey Him. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in the which all that are in the grave shall hear His voice, and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Here is a clear indication of the bodily resurrection of the Lord's people unto everlasting life, and incidentally of the bodily resurrection of the wicked unto everlasting damnation, punishment, and destruction. And then in John chapter 6, there are these two bold statements at verses 39 and 40. This is the Father's will which hath sent me, Christ said, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life and I will raise him up at the last day. Again, references to the resurrection of the dead from the grave at the last day by the Lord Jesus for everyone who has believed on Him. Put their trust in Him. 
later on, he speaks of the means by which this is to be accomplished by means of his body and his blood, salvation by his sacrifice, whereby he gives his people the eternal bread of life unto salvation. And then finally in John chapter 11, verse 20, after Lazarus has died, Martha says to Christ as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet Him. But Mary sat still in the house and said, Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if Thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever Thou wilt ask of God, God will give it Thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto Him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus saith unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. Martha apparently did not recognize that even though Jesus is Messiah, the promised Savior, she didn't properly grasp that he had authority of himself given to him by his father to raise up his people from the dead. But notice that she believed in the resurrection of the dead at the last day, and Jesus didn't disabuse her of it. He merely told her that he is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Now, that doesn't mean that believers don't die and go to the grave. What Jesus is saying is that in the end, you see, we rise to life eternal. So that death is merely a temporary sleep for the people of God. For Christ will raise us up unto everlasting life and we will never die for all eternity. Christ clearly taught a physical resurrection of His people by His mighty power. This had been foretold of old that the Lord's people would rise again. In Psalm 16, it says, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, nor wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Now, this is a twofold promise. The word hell means the grave. The psalmist is saying that God will not leave his soul in hell, it may be there a while, that is in the grave, but God will not leave it there. He will have everlasting life, it says later, in the presence of God forever. But then a special promise to Messiah, nor wilt thou suffer thine Holy One, that's Messiah, to see corruption, which is a prophecy of the death of Messiah and the quick resurrection from the dead of the Messiah so that he was not in the grave four days by which time his body would have begun to corrupt. And then, of course, in Job chapter 19 is that great promise that Job embraces, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though the worms destroy my body, yet shall I see him in my own flesh, and not another. I shall behold him with mine own eye and the thought of it takes my breath away. Now here is the understanding of the Old Testament saints that the Redeemer 
who is the Lord Jesus, one day would make an appearance in the last day upon this earth. He would stand there and that the saints who trusted in Him, even though they had already died and their body had been eaten by worms and so had their eyeballs been eaten by worms, yet they would see Him in that day in their own flesh and with their own eyes. So there is the promise in olden times of the resurrection of the saints, of the physical resurrection of the saints, that they would see their Messiah, their Redeemer, in bodily form with physical flesh and blood themselves. Now, the passage we read in Isaiah 26 is an obscure promise of the resurrection. If you will see that it is a hymn, large parts of it are a hymn or a poem of praise to God for salvation and yet a discussion of the trouble of the Lord's people and the evil of wicked men. And at verse 13 it says, O Lord our God, other lords beside Thee have had dominion over us, but by Thee only will we make mention of Thy name. They are dead. They shall not live. They are deceased. They shall not arise. Therefore hast Thou visited and destroyed them and made all their memory to perish. And then they go on to sing the praises of the Lord again. And at verse 19, Thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in dust. For thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Now here's a promise that the Lord's dead people one day will live. And it's not clear from the text when it says, Together with my dead body shall they arise. Is that the prophet speaking of his own dead body or is it Messiah speaking of his own dead body that rises and one day too we rise with it and there will be an awakening and a singing. The people that dwelt in the dust, that is the people that were rotting in the ground, but who were the Lord's people Thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. So here is another Old Testament reference to the physical resurrection of the body of the saints. Now the Apostle Paul clearly taught the physical bodily resurrection of the saints. We are buried in our dead natural bodies, and we are raised in spiritual bodies. Now this is the source of all sorts of false teaching. People who claim that the Lord's people are only raised spiritually. that They don't actually have physical bodies that are raised. They're just raised spiritual. Spiritual bodies. But the key to this, understanding why this is false, is the reference to the bodies. It says spiritual bodies. Nowhere else in Scripture are the spirits described as having bodies, okay? Except for the Lord's people, well, except for humanity, human beings have bodies which also are clothes for their spirits, you see. But Paul is not making the point that we will be buried in physical bodies and raised in non-physical bodies. What he's saying is that they will be spiritual bodies, by which he means that instead of the way we're buried in weakness and the way we live 
on this earth in weakness. They will be raised with power. With power. Instead of being buried as natural bodies, they will be raised as spiritual bodies. Instead of being buried in dishonor, they will be raised in glory. Instead of being buried with corruptible bodies, which proceed to corrupt in the grave, we will be raised incorruptible. Incorruptible bodies. So there is an attempt by Paul that is, until it happens, we really won't grasp the full nature of it, but that there will be a change in our bodies, and yet they will be substantial physical bodies. But now they will be called spiritual bodies. Not just spirits, but spiritual bodies. And if you look in 1 Corinthians 15, you'll see that all the examples of the different types of bodies are substantial physical bodies. The the stars, the moon, the sun, terrestrial bodies, celestial bodies, these are none of them primarily spiritual beings, but rather they are tangible physical bodies of different shapes and sizes and characteristics and so forth. And Paul is teaching us that there will be a spiritual body which is shed of all of these deficits which our natural bodies necessarily have now because of sin. And he says it will be at the last trump that dead will be raised incorruptible. Raised incorruptible. We will be raised incorruptible. And the ones of the saints who are alive will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Not only ourselves, but the whole creation looks forward to this rescue from the bondage of sin and corruption. And we read of this in Romans 8 at verse 19. For the earnest expectation of the creature that is, the created beings, waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him that hath subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also, he's speaking here of physical, tangible creations that God has made. Primarily, of course, the Lord's people. He's separating that from a discussion of the merely spiritual. The creature, the physical creation of God. The creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. Now, this is an example of the already and not yet that the Scriptures often display to us. We've been adopted as sons of God if we've trusted in Jesus and the Lord has taken us. Remember, the Lord Jesus leads many sons to glory. And so it is with all the Lord's people, already adopted. And yet, there's one part of the adoption still left to take place, the redemption of our body. The redemption of our body. Paul is teaching in this text that our physical bodies are what groan in travail and under the bondage of corruption, under the taint of sin and disobedience. And that all the creation is 
brought along with us in that regard. And that all of creation, but especially ourselves, we groan with ourselves waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. God has ordained that Christ will redeem us from all of the curse of sin and death. And already, for those who've trusted in Him, He's redeemed us. We've been declared justified, perfect in the sight of God, regardless of what sin we had that was laid on Jesus at Calvary. But one day, there's a promise of the redemption of the body, the setting free of it, the liberation of it. So these bodies are to be raised up, redeemed, and restored by Christ, free of corruption, when the end comes. The resurrection is from the bondage of corruption unto a glorious liberty. And this is true for the animals, for the plants, for all the creation, one day. And for us, this is to be the redemption of the body. By Christ's death, He takes away sin. One day soon at the resurrection, undoes all the corruption that sin brought into this physical world, Christ must redeem the whole creation and make it new again without pain and sorrow and death or sin and unrighteousness. It is not enough for Christ to raise up our spirits. Christ will raise up His whole creation with singing and great rejoicing. This physical bodily resurrection is proclaimed by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4. We all know the text well. That he would not have us to be ignorant concerning them which are asleep, that we sorrow, even as others that have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with Him. Notice the parallel. Just like Jesus rose from the dead with a physical, tangible body, so God will raise up all the Lord's people in like manner. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not go before them which are asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Here is the description of the bodily resurrection of believers. And you might ask, as some cynics do, well, how's that going to happen when their bodies have been spread around with ashes? Or if some animal has eaten part of the body and then some person has eaten part of the animal? God doesn't have to use the identical elements of your dead body to recreate you. After all, None of those elements that are in your body when you die were in your body when you were born. They all cycle through and are replaced. And the Lord's perfectly able to reconstitute your body wherever it is, whatever part of it remains, or even if no part of it remains. He has the power to do that because He's the one that made life, that created us, ourselves, in the first place. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Finally, in Philippians chapter 3 at verse 20, there's that glorious promise, for our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark it well. 
Who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto His glorious body, according to the working whereby He is able even to subdue all things unto Himself? Now notice this, that one day we will be changed. Either changed because we've not died yet, or raised from the grave and changed to be fashioned like the glorious body of Christ. And if Christ be risen physically, seated at God's right hand in His physical body, then at the resurrection, so too shall we. And we will be converted to be like unto Him according to the working whereby He's able even to subdue all things unto Himself. Christ is the Creator. He's the God-man. He made all things. He controls all things. He upholds all things by the word of His power. Surely He can change our lowly, corrupt, sinful bodies to be made like unto His glorious resurrection bodies. We will have bodies like Christ's, no longer common or vile or subject to death or the punishment of sin, but like unto His glorious body. There will be finally an identity a perfect likeness of our low, broken down bodies with the risen glorious body of Jesus. Now finally, Paul makes an argument in a striking manner in 1 Corinthians 15 to rebut those who deny the resurrection of the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15 we read this, verse 12, Now if Christ be preached that He rose from the dead, how say some among you, that there's no resurrection of the dead. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching in vain and your faith is also vain. Now look at the way Paul is arguing here. We all agree that Christ rose from the dead. These particular false teachers didn't have a problem with that. What they had a problem with was the proclamation that there would be a resurrection of the dead of the Lord's people. But Paul inverts the argument. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? Now the key to this is, you see how Christ intimately ties Christ's resurrected body with our resurrected body. And he says, if we don't have resurrected bodies one day, then that means Christ wasn't raised from the dead. You see the identity that He makes, the connection that He makes between Christ having a resurrection body and Him promising us that we would have a resurrection body. If we're not to be raised from the dead, that means Christ wasn't really raised from the dead. Christ rose, ergo we will rise. This is Paul's thesis. And the contradiction of that is, if we don't rise, then Christ did not rise. These are logical arguments and the converse of them. The Scriptures teach that Christ rose and therefore He will raise us up. To deny that He will raise us up is to deny that Christ rose. Look at verse 15. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. You are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. 
So Paul is teaching the dramatic position that without the resurrection, there is no salvation. There is no hope. There is no forgiveness. The gospel is completely vain and void if Christ didn't rise. And if we don't rise one day, that means Christ didn't rise. But then look at verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept? Notice this reference again to a harvest, you see. Christ is the first fruits. And the image of the first fruit, the grain that grows from the seed that was planted, the image of that is a physical image. Christ in his resurrected body is the first fruit. It's the tangible physical result of the death that Christ died. And the second fruit and the last fruit are in the same form and image as the first fruit. It's all one crop, you see. You plant wheat, you don't expect to get corn or something else. You expect to get wheat and you get a bumper crop of wheat from one little grain of wheat that's buried. Continuing on, He's become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Adam brought death to us all. His sin brought death to us all. And Paul is teaching that the only place life comes is from a man, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at His coming. So here it is repeated again. Just as Christ rose bodily from the grave, so too in the end shall all His people rise bodily from the grave. So that, you see, the fruit is comparable, similar, alike, one to another. Then cometh the end when He shall deliver it up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when He shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for He must reign till He hath put all enemies under His feet. So there is a connection with the notion of a harvest of grain. The first fruits are Christ. The subsequent fruit are the saints raised in glory at the end. And there is identity expressed here between the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of His people, and it is a consequence of Christ's victory over sin and death and hell and the grave when He died for our sins and was raised on the third day, which we celebrate this Lord's Day. Here are some thoughts in conclusion. Christ must be like His people in our humanity. Haven't we been teaching this in Hebrews and in other places for the last, lo, these many weeks? Christ must be like His people in our humanity with physical bodies. It's the whole point of the incarnation. Because otherwise, He's no longer qualified to be our sacrifice or our high priest. If He's been stripped of His humanity in glory, if He no longer has a physical body, then He can't be our sacrifice and He can't be our high priest. That's the teaching of Hebrews, that it's His incarnation, His suffering in His body, His likeness to His people and yet without sin, His temptation like His people that qualifies Him to be our high priest. 
that qualifies him to be our sacrifice. And this can never change, and it cannot be taken away. And then secondly, recall that Christ raised at least three bodies from the grave, and every single one of them were physical, concrete resurrections. Lazarus' grave was empty after he rose from the dead. The daughter of Jairus' bed was empty after he lifted her up by her hand and told her parents to give her something to eat. The widow of Nan's son was lying on a bier dead in the street one minute, and the next minute he was up on the ground talking, and the Lord Jesus handed him back to his mother. So these are examples out of place and out of time of what Christ means when He says He raises somebody from the dead. He means that their bodies are raised physically from the dead. Now there is a promise of the coming physical resurrection at the Lord's table, isn't there? In Mark's Gospel, the 14th chapter, we read of this promise of the Lord Jesus at verse 22 of Mark 14. And as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And He took the cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, and they all drank it. These are pictures of His sacrifice on the cross, which He is about to make shortly. And He said unto them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will no more drink of the fruit of the vine, until that day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Here is a promise not only of Christ's resurrection, but of His people's resurrection. Our Lord Jesus will one day drink this celebratory wine with us new in glory in the kingdom of God. Spirits can't drink wine, but the Lord's raised up glorified body can, and one day He's promised it will and all the saints with Him in their raised up glorified bodies. So we celebrate, you see, at the Lord's table, His death for us each Lord's Day morning. But we also celebrate this promise that one day we will celebrate His death and His victory with Jesus' glorious body and our own, physically present together once more and forever. And that will be a glorious time. And it reminds me at least of that great hymn that we have sung so often. Crown Him with many crowns, the Lamb upon His throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of Him who died for thee and hail Him as thy matchless King through all eternity. Crown Him the Lord of love. Behold His hands inside, rich wounds yet visible above, in beauty glorified. No angel in the sky can fully bear that sight, but downward bends His wandering eye at mysteries so bright. Crown Him the Lord of life who triumphed o'er the grave, who rose victorious to the strife. For those He came to save, his glories now we sing, who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring, and lives that death may die. Crown Him the Lord of heaven, one with the Father known, one with the Spirit 
through Him given from yonder glorious throne, to Thee be endless praise, for Thou for us hast died. Be Thou, O Lord, through endless days adored and magnified. And so it is around this table that we adore and magnify our sweet Lord Jesus, who laid down His life for us, delivered up His body as an offering, poured out His blood to make satisfaction for our guilt unto God. And by that blood, Christ tells us our sins are forgiven if we've trusted in Jesus. And if you haven't trusted in Jesus, you don't have anything to celebrate yet. So you probably shouldn't partake of the Lord's table, should you? But for all who have trusted in Jesus, and He has saved us, and He has promised us a resurrected body like His own glorious resurrected body, we ought to celebrate this feast together. And we ought to be reminded by the bread and the wine what they picture, the real body and blood of Christ by which He has redeemed us and saved us and promised us eternal life one day soon with Him. Well, let's give thanks for the Lord's table and for the bread, first of all, that He ordained to picture and remind us of His broken body on the tree. Oh God, our Father, we rejoice in what Your Son, the Lord Jesus, has done to save Your people whom You love. That having loved His own in the world, He loved us unto the end. Loved us unto the end and beyond the end for all eternity. We thank You for the bread that He left us to picture His body mutilated and torn as an offering for our sin like the Lamb slain on the altar, the wrath poured down on Jesus, and His body was torn, and His visage was marred more than any man. And yet, in that body torn for us, there is life. Life unto Christ, life for Christ, life for His people who trust in Him. We thank You that we can feed on the body of Christ spiritually, for He is the bread of life that came down from heaven. We pray You will bless this bread to our hearts and work an act of worship and adoration in them unto Your dear Son, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us on the night He was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it. And He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. I'd like to ask Brother Witten if he'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed for the forgiveness of our sin. And the Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sins. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 234 in the black book, Thomas Kelly's little short hymn, Endless Praises to Our Lord, Ever Be His Name Adored. Hallelujah! Crown the Lamb. He is worthy, praise His name. He is worthy, praise His name. 234.